According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 11. This morning, we've been teaching Proverbs since uh, June of 2014, so almost two and a half years now. Hard to imagine. 128 weeks, I think, something like that. And uh, this is class number 114. We also started uh, Galatians on the very same Wednesday. <laughs> so Wednesday morning we started Proverbs, Wednesday night we started Galatians, and uh, here we are. All right, Proverbs chapter 11. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to bless our time in His truth today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning for the truth of your word and our blessing to assemble together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness and the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. Father, uh, teach us. Um, Thank you, Father, for the blessing that we have. Teach us this truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Slightly scatterbrained this morning. That's just I'm on the edge of what might be a migraine maybe an hour from now. (laughs) Let's hope it holds off till 11 o'clock. Um, we're dealing with uh, practical issues carrying across from chapter 10, and uh, really the chapter divisions are kind of arbitrary. I'm, I'm curious as to how they were assembled, uh, if perhaps even uh, each chapter was a standalone uh, a composition. If each chapter was a, a, a preaching tradition on Solomon's part, then they just had to put them in an order, and, and this is the order we have them in today. But uh, we're dealing with these uh, ideas here, and we left off as we're talking about pu- uh, personal wisdom becoming public wisdom and how it guides, and these are issues that we want to understand. So we're in point five presently, so let me just skip on through. There's a new, uh, this is kind of fun, Office 365 has a little tool here. You can look at all your slides all at once, and you can go to the one you want to go to. I want to go to this one. All right which was point five in our outline. The upright exhibit integrity. And this is what we talk about when we talk about personal wisdom becoming public wisdom and the natural way that that happens. It happens organically. It happens um, uh, from the bottom up. It happens with individual believers being shaped by the Word of God. This is what's going to have impact in a community, in a state, in a nation as we understand it. So the upright exhibit integrity. We see it here in verse 3. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And so there's a benefit to integrity. Not only is it personal, but it's also public, that it becomes a, a, a rule of thumb. It becomes a, a guide. It becomes a, a, a point of direction for believers. Uh, as in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, A believer can hold to their integrity and, in fact, be led by their integrity in in terms of decision-making. And and if you have a a choice A or choice B, you want to take what's behind uh, door number one or curtain number two or take box number three or whatever whatever you're doing, sometimes um, 
you don't have a clear passage of, of Scripture to, to line things up, but you do have principles of Scripture and you do have the consequences of Scripture as you are being molded into the image of Christ and as you have integrity that, uh, that leads you. And so this is uh, a principle, hopefully, that we uh, will understand better uh, after uh, this particular study. All right. So the upright exhibit integrity. Personal wisdom becomes public wisdom. And this serves to guide them in every circumstance. On the flip side, in contrast to this, the treacherous exhibit crookedness. And so what's the antithesis of personal wisdom? Personal folly. Public wisdom, public folly. And we got a lot of it on display. A lot of public folly on display. Why is that? Because there's a concentration of personal folly that comes together and feeds off of one another in different applications. And so uh, this serves to destroy them. It's destructive, not only for them, but quite a few folks around them in uh, cursing by association and everything else. The crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And so um, really my point of study there is is, uh, wordy and lengthy. Uh, in the New American Standard, it's 17 words. When you, when you count the words there in verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. 17 words in the English, or 37 words in, in my uh, extravagant point five there. Um, really, it's communicated in six words in the Hebrew. It is so concise and it is so pithy. And that's the nature of what uh, Hebrew poetry does. In a very concise manner, in a very short manner, in, in, in such a beautiful way, it lays these things out there with only six words. Three on the one hand, three on the other hand. All right? And so we start with the two math, Yesharim, Tanchim. We start with those first three words and we, we see everything here related to the integrity of the upright will guide them. <laughs> All right, in just three short words. So we want to know what tumath is. We want to understand the integrity principle that we all should have. We all want to be upright, and we are upright with personal wisdom as we're conformed to the Word of God, as the Word of God shapes us. We are upright in that capacity, but then we have this integrity that's being expressed. So what is this integrity dealing with? And this is what we're looking at under point B. We're talking about tuma. Remember, tuma. Not Huma, but Tuma. And uh, principles there are T-U-M-M-A-H, Tuma. Number 8538 is the Strong's number. It only has five uses. There are other uh, cognate forms, though, that have more than just those five. But we're talking about integrity. It's a feminine noun. Tuma has these five uses. And we've seen them already. We looked at them a week ago. Job uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 9, where he held fast to his integrity, even when Satan said he wouldn't even when his wife is mocking him for holding fast to his integrity, he is holding fast to his integrity. He's holding fast to his tuma. We all want to hold fast to our tuma because we all should have integrity living our lives according to the Word of God. Uh, other uses include Job 27.5 and Job 31.6. Now tuma, as a feminine noun, is related to tome as a masculine noun. And uh, tome has quite a few more uses than tuma. Tome has 23 uses. It's not tom, it's tome, okay, with a long O there, the holum vowel. Tome, 8537 is the Strong's number here. And so um, what's the difference between masculine integrity and feminine integrity? What's the difference between tome and tuma? I can't see a whole lot of difference whatsoever other than 
the Hebrew language likes to use feminine, and, and you can't even say it's a poetry thing either, because, um, okay, it's Job and it's Proverbs, and so uh, Job is very early, and, and they're all it's all poetry. Uh, no, chapter 2 is not poetry. Chapter 2 is prose. And then in Genesis, um, no, you've got a mix of, of prose and poetry here too. So I think the choice of whether to use the masculine or the feminine is, is really author's uh, preference. And uh, for whatever reason, they had the flexibility to use either tome or tuma, depending on what they wanted to use. So uh, let's start with Genesis 20, and we'll get a few more glimpses into uh, into what this integrity is. Do we even know what integrity is anymore? I think we do because we're in the scriptures. But uh, this lost culture we live in, I think, is so adrift. This um, this uh, day and age in which morality seems highly relative, in which personal morality is substituted for anything goes, then it just kind of slides downhill from there. And what is there any such thing as integrity anymore? It's just about, uh, I guess, not getting caught. <laughs> and uh, so long as you don't get caught, you have integrity. How, how sad is that? All right, Genesis 20, verse 5 and verse 6. Um, this is the second time now that Abraham and Sarah have pulled off the old she's my sister routine. Uh, the first time was in uh, chapter 12 when they were sojourning in Egypt, and it didn't work out so well that first time. In fact, she was brought into Pharaoh's harem, and uh, only by the grace of God was she then restored to Abraham uh, there at the end of, uh, in the process of that chapter. Now for the second time, it's a different venue, but the same failure. So Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. So geographically, it's not so bad. They haven't fled all the way as far as Egypt. They're just halfway to Egypt, on the way to Egypt. But still, it's the same fear, it's the same failure. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And really, what's the difference between chapter 12 and chapter 20? Well, in chapter 12, she was Sarai. In chapter 20, she's Sarah. And in chapter 12, he was Abram. In chapter 20, he's Abraham. And uh, does that make a difference? I think it does. He has more doctrine now than he had back then. He's older now. He should know better. He ought to have learned from the previous failure. Don't repeat a previous failure. If you learn the the lesson the first time, don't repeat it a second time. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. And so we see that the same consequences that had happened in chapter 12, she was brought into Pharaoh's harem, and here she's brought into Abimelech's harem. Uh, Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? And we have details here we don't have in chapter 12, and that's extraordinary. Uh, Abimelech had not come near her, so she's brought into his harem, but they've not yet consummated the uh the uh relationship as we might say all right and and abimelech is able to speak directly to yahweh he responds to this message god came to abimelech in a dream and pronounced his judgment and he responded in faith and i think it's remarkable that it's god in verse three but when abimelech responds he responds yahweh does he no he does not He responds, Adonai, in verse 4. 
Will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did she? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And, he, and she herself said, he is my brother. So both parties are involved in the deception, like Ananias and Sapphira. They conspired, they agreed, they both told the same lie. In the integrity of my heart, in the, to, in the tome of my lave, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the tome of your life, in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also have kept you from sinning against me. Oh, look at that. Here's a benefit. God who looks upon the heart sees that integrity for what it is. And he overrules Abraham's sin. He overrules the uh, circumstance here. It's a great illustration of the overruling will of God. There's the directive will of God, the permissive will of God, and then the overruling will of God, as we understand it. It's a great illustration for what God has directed, what God has permitted, and then how he steps in to mitigate the damage and overrule and limit certain things. I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. There's a reason why. And however God did this, however God stepped in and and kept kept, uh, them from sleeping together, um, he did. Prevented that from happening. Say, by the way, this, this, this statement, this detail is not in chapter 12. And we, we were left to, to wonder in chapter 12 about the, the time that, that Sarah spent in Pharaoh's harem. Say, because it's left unstated. Uh, so therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. It's remarkable, too, that even though it's in the in- integrity of his heart, he did nothing wrong. He's still under judgment. And, and there's a dynamic here that works between the covenant nation of Israel and, uh, the, and the Gentiles in the sense that Abraham has been called, and, and this is uh, very early in the, in the stewardship of Israel in, uh, in that regard. All right. Anyway, these are our uses on integrity. What's interesting is when uh, Abraham then gets rebuked, uh, Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. And he called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And then here comes the weasel words, right? Well, technically, you know, I didn't really lie. I was only a little half of a lie, because besides, actually, she is sort of my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. So she became my wife. And uh, anyway, there's more fear of God in this place than Abraham gave credit for. Abimelech was a strong believer. And uh, it's uh, kind of a neat thing to, to view in this uh, in this chapter. All right, so there's uh, a couple of tome uses. And really, is there a difference between tome, as far as Abimelech's integrity, and tuma in terms of Job's integrity? Uh, seems to me that it's uh, that they're largely interchangeable. All right, 1 Kings 9.4. Some more tome illustrations. And here's... Um, Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, and the Lord uh, comes to him and appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, 
And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in, and here's here's Tom, in integrity of heart and uprightness. It's our expression for uprightness we're looking at in Proverbs 11. Doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances. Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David. All right, so here we have the illustration of, again, it's integrity. It's personal wisdom becoming a public wisdom. Living it out in the community, living it out in the, in the uh, state and the country and so forth. And what a thrill for a king to be shaped by the word of God. What a benefit for a nation. Abimelech blessed the Philistines of his generation because of that. David blessed Israel because of that. Solomon started off, well, blessing Israel because of that and then rejected it and fell into folly by the end of his life. All right, uh, Job, oh, back to Job again, 4.6. So Job not only used the uh, uh, feminine, Tuma, Job also used the masculine uh, of Tom. And so uh, that's interesting. If the same author is going to use both expressions, then uh, why is that? Stick with one. No? Stick with the other. No? Make up your mind. Maybe this is just the words of Eliphaz. Eliphaz preferred the masculine while Job used the feminine. Who, who knows? I think they're largely interchangeable. Job 4, six. Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? And, and even there, doesn't that seem to show both an internal and external? Doesn't it show a personal wisdom and a public wisdom? How a believer is being shaped by the fear of the Lord and so he's living it out in his integrity? the integrity of your ways, how you conduct your life. And, uh, and and that's what he's known for. That's what Eliphaz probably respects him for, at least up until now. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, so Psalms. Psalm 7, 8, chapter 7, verse 8. Or Psalm 7, verse 8. Better way of saying that. Verse 6 says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. So Sadiq, we got righteousness personal wisdom it's internalized but then publicly it's expressed there is integrity that is the outworking of a personal wisdom oh let the evil of the wicked come to an end but establish the righteous for the righteous god tries the hearts and the minds my shield is with god who saves the upright in heart god is a righteous judge and a god who has indignation every day all right so that's a good context for that psalm 25 Psalm 25. And I hope that the, 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 the weight of this blesses us and, and reminds us that integrity shaped by the Word of God can only be provided through the Word of God. That all these other replicas, all these other facsimiles, these, these lies, 
when the world tells you, well, I don't need to be a Christian to be moral, or I don't need the Bible to have ethics, or I don't need to, uh, that I can be a good person, I can be a moral person without going to church, you know, and we want to we want to be able to address that not only in our own thinking clearly, but then we want to be able to refute that when we're in face to face discussions with these poor lost souls, because they may hold to a form of godliness, but they're denying its power, and uh, it's it's delusional to think that anything other than what God has prescribed is worth anything. See, and they're just as as useless as Cain with his vegetables. All right, God has prescribed the uh, the methodology for our walk, and that's to be shaped by the Word of God. And if we're not shaped and transformed through the renewing of our mind and the transformation that happens there in the Word of God, then we're being conformed to this age. And, and all of our goodness is, is not His goodness. All of our integrity is, is worth you know, nothing in the, in the eyes of God. And, uh, and, and uh, we want to see over and over and over again how it is the Word of God producing tom or tumah, the integrity that, that comes about. And... Uh, as far as that goes, all right? Psalm 25 and verse 21. Uh, again, there's conflict. So many of these come up in conflict. Uh, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. You know, a lot of times integrity only shows itself when you're the last man standing. <laughs> Do you compromise your integrity then? The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. You know, what's he concerned about? His enemies or the damage to his own soul if he loses sight of the Lord during this time of conflict? Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So, marvelous uh, context for this as well. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Going back to verse 12. Excellent, excellent psalm. All right, so that's Psalm 25. Next chapter, Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord. Another Davidic psalm. Many of these are David's, all right? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And this is the, you know, David could have written the book of James, I think, with, uh, you know, show, I'll show you my faith with my works. He is, he's living out his faith. He trusts in God and he's living that out in the integrity of his ways. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Because he's not putting on a show. It's not phony. It's not some external demonstration of integrity that's not real because uh, because of a phony heart. No, in David's case, it's real. So that's verse 1. Uh, you get down to verse uh, 11. But as for me, here's a contrast. He's not going to go with that other crowd. As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place and the congregations I shall bless the Lord. And this is twice now we've come across a concept of redemption that's post-redemption, right? I mean, David's already saved. He's already a believer. So what kind of redemption is he asking for here? What kind of, uh, what kind of uh, phase two redemption is he, is he gearing in on here when we think of uh, the use of saving, even with redemption terminology that has phase one, phase two, phase three connotations? 
Psalm uh, 41 and verse 12. More conflict, more enemies. And here's uh, another Davidic psalm. So uh, they're waiting to attack him. They can't wait to tear him down. There's a whole conspiracy doing this. They're whispering together. They're plotting these things. Verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And uh, the, the last straw, in this sense, was, was uh, um, Ahithophel, the Gilanite. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me uh, in your uh, presence forever. And so here we see it, integrity, the masculine tome, right? Um, There's a little, what's that? There's a, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking, right? You ever heard that? Kind of a secular maxim. Well, it's a bit misleading because when is ever no one looking? Because God's always looking. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the sense of integrity, Tom is, is, is always walking in the fear of the Lord and the integrity of the Word of God shaping your thinking because you are walking with the Lord. Not only that He's watching you, but He's fellowshipping with you and you're fellowshipping with Him and you have this fear of the Lord intimacy, uh, not just uh, uh, not being afraid of, of getting caught, but that fear and that reverence has, is, is shaping this, uh, this entire integrity. That's, that's a, a better expression. But maybe it's just not as catchy. <laughs> All right. Psalm uh, 41, 12, we just saw that. Psalm 78, 72. 78, 72. And here's, uh, this is a bit of a walk through the Bible, isn't it? Looking back, reviewing talking about uh, how faithful God has been and it's uh, it's useful to look back and recount his faithfulness um, but verse 70 says he chose David his servant took him from the sheepfolds from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance what a great proving ground he was ready to be king because of all the lessons he learned as a shepherd So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. And, uh, you know, those those are inseparable. Absolutely, it's inseparable. And uh, who do you want for a political leader? Who do you want for a president, for a governor, for a mayor, for a precinct chairman, for any, at any level? You want integrity of heart? You want skillful hands, say, All right, Psalm 101, verse 2. Psalm 101, I will will sing of the loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. And this is a cognate adjective, really. Um, uh, To the noun we're looking at this morning. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of of my heart and so the willingness to just keep doing keep on keeping on walking in integrity until god chooses to answer when will you answer well that's your good timing we're going to stay faithful in the mean in the meantime 
All right, those were all the Psalms. Um, previous uses uh, include, uh, we're in Proverbs 11, so we've already seen Tome twice prior to the chapter we're in this morning. Uh, Proverbs 2 7. I don't believe we even mentioned tome as a vocabulary word back in chapter 2, but there, there it is. Proverbs 2 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And uh, the principle there. I keep losing my place. This will help me. All right. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 9. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. And I remember teaching that, but we did not discuss the vocabulary of tome, and there it is. We talked about the uh, contrast between those two walks, but didn't look at the vocabulary. Proverbs 19.1 Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. And these contrasts are also useful because it's uh, integrity is a subject that we should think about in terms of either or. You've got it or you don't, right? You're either walking in integrity or you're perverse and, and you've lost it. And in the sense of once you've lost it, how do you get it back? And what's the, what's the, uh, what's the consequence of surrendering your integrity, right? And it's, uh, in, in, in a lot of cases... You've done some real damage there, and, and those that entrusted you, those that were counting on you, those that looked up to you, if you're a king or a husband or a pastor or uh, or what have you, how do you how do you get that back once you've uh, once you've thrown it away? Proverbs twenty and verse seven: A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. So personal wisdom becomes public wisdom, and then it becomes generational. You get to pass a heritage, a legacy, on to your descendants, to your children and your grandchildren. 28.6. Proverbs 28.6. Sticky pages this morning. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. And often this is the case, and Satan will try to tempt us to compromise on our integrity and throw some money at us, and, and uh, well, it becomes our test. Do we hold fast to our integrity, or do we, do we jump at the money? Do we get excited about earthly things? All right, so we've seen the nouns. The feminine noun, the masculine noun, not a lot of distinction. I don't think there's any distinction between them. I think they're largely uh, synonymous or interchangeable. Uh, related to these nouns is the adjective of tamim, T-A-M-I-Y-M, tamim. And uh, if, if you thought five feminine nouns was a lot or, or uh, 23 masculine nouns was a lot, now, man, we're dealing with 91 adjectives, okay? And we already saw one of them because just in passing we spotted it there in the Psalms, the adjective of tamim. What's interesting, though, is this adjective, the noun is integrity, the adjective is blameless, Okay? And that might be helpful as well because uh, I think sometimes we think of blameless as perfect, never sinning, right? That's not blameless. It's, it is a, it's an adjectival description of integrity. 
Uh, we want to be blameless. Job was blameless. I didn't mean that he was without sin and unleavened and could go to the cross to redeem us, right? Uh, we want to understand what this blamelessness is as when we do sin, we confess it, we get restored to fellowship, we keep short accounts. That's blameless, right? That's owning up to when we do fall short and, and accepting his grace provision. That's blameless, and so we have the emphasis there. When the uh, adjective is applied to a sacrificial animal, then uh, it's often rendered as without defect. All right, And so the uh, lamb is to be spotless and blameless. And there's to be without spot, without blame, without defect. And so uh, Leviticus 1, 3, and 10, and often where we have uh, without defect in the description of, a, uh, of, a, of an animal. Of course, the animal's blameless in that sense. Uh, Genesis 6, 9, Noah was blameless in his day. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his day. Genesis 17, 1. I thought I could recite these without turning to any of them, but I have forgotten. This is Abraham. Genesis 17. Walk before me and be blameless. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This is not his gospel call. He's been a believer for a long, long time. But this is a call. And uh, he's on the verge of parenthood. Even a 99-year-old man can get a little bit nervous <laughs> in the pacing the waiting room, ready to pass out the cigars. Uh, walk before me and be tamim, be blameless. In other words, it's not just growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not just being a hearer of the word, but it's being a doer of the word. It's having an external application. It's having uh, turning personal wisdom into public wisdom. Uh, having uh, having an, an application that is consistent with what you're learning. Walk before me and be blameless. So there's Noah, there's Abraham. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 3. This shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, so this is the animal sacrificial term here, which they shall give to the priest, the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. What am I looking for here? Oh, verse 13. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And this is uh, why they aren't to be casting spells and they aren't to be all the demonism of the Canaanites that are around them. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Child sacrifice. And in our generation, it's the the abortion industry and all the the darkness of, of that. Or one who uses divination. Or one who practices witchcraft. Or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. And all of these things, every last bit of it is satanic. All, of, all Every last bit of that is tapping into angelic powers to try to bring about some kind of an effect here in the material world. Okay, And it's uh, all of it is wrong, because the elect angels aren't empowering any of this. <laughs> every angel you might tap into is going to be a fallen angel. Every demon is going to be uh, would be happy to, to give you some power and to have some kind of a manifestation in the physical dimension. The, the elect angels want no part of that. The elect angels are pointing you to, to God, to His Word. And uh, it's interesting, all right? 
we were discussing on Saturday the, the fascination with superhero movies and comic books and all these things and, and why does humanity desire to have powers that are beyond humanity, right? Superpowers and, and you know, I want to fly or I want to, you know, I want to punch through walls or, or I mean, not because I want to be a superhero, I just want to punch through walls sometimes or whatever the case may be, all right? Um, so it's fun, you know, I'll be the flash and run at super speeds or whatever. Um, Anyway, why why are those things popular? Why do people dream about stuff beyond them and whatever? You know, maybe it's, who knows? Maybe it's escapism or whatever. But uh, the case may be it's common to man and it's pretty often and this kind of stuff makes good money. Uh, people buy movie tickets and comic books and whatever else. Um, and they've been doing it for a long, long time. Somebody on Saturday at Mike Smith's church was connecting it back to mythology, to Greek mythology. And this it's not new you know, I mean, Hercules and Zeus and these guys have been around for a long, long time. Um, anyway, uh, we don't want to tap into those powers. Why would we use demonic power anyway? The power we have is the Holy Spirit. The power we have is God Almighty. And um, in fact, when we're weak, then we're strong. So we can learn some real principles of, of the, the power of God uh, as He works through us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. It is, uh, it is amazing how the fallen angels mock us in our dust beings that we are, and yet uh, it's, it's through here that the surpassing glory of the grace can belong to God and not ourselves. And uh, in different things. I think about that every time I stop on a, stomp on a cockroach. Yep, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're just pathetic little dust creatures in the sight of the angels. And it's a, uh, a glorious thing. All right, what am I reading? Deuteronomy 18. Um, so whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Remember the concept of abomination, of detestable? He's pushing it away. He wants nothing to do with it. Because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And this is uh, called, uh, Israel as a nation is called to be the covenant nation, the blameless nation, the holy nation. We in the body of Christ have similar expectations. Um, Psalm 119. The Psalm 119 psalmist knew this. Wish we knew his name. A lot of traditions assigned it to David, but I believe it was uh, later than David, very influenced by David. I think it's, um, it could even be Jeremiah. It could be uh, a contemporary of Jeremiah. It was somebody that was, well, no, Jeremiah wasn't carried off to the captivity. I think he was carried off to the captivity. I think each day on the death march he composed another strophe and um, in any event, that's a, a legend. But verse 1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those or how happy are those whose way is tamim, who walk in the law of the Lord. They don't just know the word of God, they're living the word of God. They have a public testimony to their faith. And then down to verse 80 more tamim that gets expressed there. Really, out of 91 uses, I'm giving you a pretty small sample of this adjective. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Proverbs 2.21. Again, the adjective is tamim for blameless. It speaks of integrity. Not sinless, blameless. Proverbs 2.21, For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. 
And then chapter 11, where we're in today, verse 5, verse 20. Really, uh, everything we're doing now in verse 3 is uh, doing us a big favor because it kind of comes back again in verse 5. I'm not even going to teach verse 5 because we're teaching it here in verse 3. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. When we talk about guidance, when we talk about what we're guided by, having our path smooth, same thing, same concept. When we talk about the treacherous uh, destroying them, well, the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. So really the redundancy of verse 3 and 5 does us a favor here. We can take extra time teaching verse 3 and then say, hey, we already taught it when we get to verse 5. It's the adjective tamim there in verse 5. Also verse 20 of this chapter, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. And that's the pushing away abomination or the hugging, drawing closer, the embracing of the delight that we've studied a couple weeks ago. And uh, we ought to be hugged, hugged by the Lord as we study his truth. 28, Proverbs 28, verse 10 and verse 18. More adjectives here. He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Not only uh, the walk of integrity, but influencing others. Verse 18 of the same chapter. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall all at once. So concept, keep it in mind. We'll see it again later in the book of uh, Proverbs. How about Ezekiel 28? What do you think of when you think Ezekiel 28? Satan, that's right. We have the name of Satan here as the... Uh, angelic high priest and what he is doing in this chapter and it says you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you so satan himself was tamim blameless in his day assuming i'm quoting this correctly ezekiel 28:15 you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you the order on this is significant, okay? Because all of us are born sinners and we then can become righteous when we get saved. God imputes His righteousness to us in salvation. Every single one of us was born unrighteous, a sinner in Adam. But we become righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ and, and receive that. Adam and Eve are the only human beings that were created sinless, created blameless, created tamim, and then fell into a sinful state. Every human since Adam and Eve has gone the other direction of those that have gotten saved, right? Uh, But angels likewise, fallen angels, created blameless and then fell. And this is what was described here. He's called a cherub in verse 14. Obviously it's an angel being addressed in this chapter. And so uh, not surprising that we see that he was created. He doesn't have a birthday, he has a creation day. <laughs> right? Uh, if, we, if you have a birthday, that means you start at zero and you start counting your years and you can get your age that way. But if you have a creation day instead of a, a birthday, um, it's kind of hard to start with zero because how old was... What was Adam's physical age when he was created? God didn't put the dust together and make an infant. He put the dust together and made a grown man. I think he was 100 years old. I think he was a mature man of 100 on the day he was created. See, that's just my theory. 
because of Isaiah that says a youth will die at 100. So I think he was a 100-year-old, biologically 100-year-old male at the time he was created. And then he lived 930 years after that, right? So now we're getting into the weeds, okay? So Methuselah lived the longest at 969, but he didn't reach the oldest age, right? If we're going to be quirky with it. He didn't reach the oldest age because Adam started with a head start. Anyway, it is, no, by the way, I'm, this is, okay, I'm rambling a little bit, but um, understand though, this is the basis for the fact that no recorded human survived longer than 969 years um, tells me that uh, no tribulational survivor will still be alive at the end of the millennium that no one will live a full thousand years. I think the lifespan shrunk on a, on a curve. The lifespan is going to increase on a curve. And then it may not be until you get to generation two, three, or four probably that generation four in the millennium will be the, fir- the, the old timers that are still alive at the uh, end, at the Gog-Magog rebellion. That uh, those first couple of generations especially, they, they survived the trib. Are you kidding me? You know how tortured they were? You know how damaged they were? You know how... Uh, diseased and hurt and whatever else, I, I just uh, suspect that uh, there won't be any tribulational survivors that uh, will still be alive at the end of the millennium. But that's uh, that's for a different day. All right, uh, so here we are in Ezekiel, and this is the last of the adjectives there. Without defect, and uh, all the animal sacrifices, often in Leviticus, the temim is used for an acceptable uh, animal sacrifice. Now there's a couple of things here. I'll just read out of the uh, the uh, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. There we go. I thought they were interesting. And not only did I put my clicker on there, but I also colored it so I wouldn't forget what I was going to show. <laughs> All right. This is Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. And with respect to uh, Tom and Tuma and Tamim, um, and how in the Latin, you say, why do I care about the Latin? Why do I care about the Septuagint? Um, I, well, I thought they were interesting, so I'll tell you why. Um, but starting with the Septuagint, when they took Tamim and they put it into Greek, right? For the substantive form Tamim or Tam, uh, with its uh, positive connotations, the Septuagint generally uses forms with an alpha privative. In other words, it's not described positively, it's described as without something, without blame, without blemish. So amonos, without blemish. Fifty uses there. Supported by Leviticus 22.21, the animal must be perfect, amonos. It shall have no blemish. That uh, is, it does not have a moom, it does not have a monos, so it is amonos. It can also denote moral blamelessness. Other less common privative forms refer only to the latter and appear primarily in theological texts that deal with ethical conduct. So when you're reading Job, you're reading Psalms, you're reading Proverbs. And so we have akakos, innocent, about 15 uses. Amemptos, blameless. Athaos, not subject to prosecution. Among the non-privative forms, the most common is teleos. What do you know about teleos? Teleos from the New Testament, teleos from the Greek, we know as perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? Teleos, perfect. Seven times. 
in the Septuagint, which means perfect in both physical and moral sense. Others include hosios for devout, or katharos for pure, dikaios for righteous, aletheinos for true. And all of those Greek words found themselves being used in the, in the Septuagint um, in one context or another, with one nuance or another, in one way or another, to try to demonstrate the richness of what is uh, tamim. In one simple Hebrew term of tamim that can really encompass so many aspects and so many, such a wide variety of, of uh, concepts. So all of these translations emphasize various nuances of the Hebrew root. The Vulgate represents the neutral meaning with, uh, and these are kind of interesting, I've been doing more Latin work lately, um, impleri, universa, and consumiri. For the negative meaning, it also has consumiri along with deficiri and deliri. Okay, so that means without deficit, without um, deletion, without consumption, without you know different things there. For the positive meaning, it uses such words as immaculatus, right? Like the immaculate conception, the the Roman doctrine of immaculatus, or perfectus. I don't know that was a Latin word, or simplex and integer, all right? Integer, where we get integrity. Anyway, I liked those. Throughout the world, there are more or less precisely defined notions of integer. And uh, yeah, every culture, every culture had a concept for what it meant to have integrity. Isn't that something? And there might have been variety between them, <laughs> the Romans thought that the Greeks' definition of integrity was kind of lame, and they had their own, right? But you know, isn't it interesting? Even the pagans, why? What is it that's built within fallen humanity that still insists that there has to be a standard of right and wrong? <laughs> Every atheist that shakes their fists and tells you they're, that you're evil, right? Well, what's your basis for that? Why do you even think in terms of good and evil when you reject the existence of my God? <laughs> you know, what is it that's, that's the human nature of your soul that, uh, has, that has a, a grasp on integrity or lack thereof? Say, and I think it's that, that made in God's image, that sense of, of integrity. All right, so that's Tuma. Now, what does our Tuma do? According to Proverbs 11, our Tuma will guide us. Our tuma will nacha, guide us. The verb for guide is nacha. So subpoint C now. If you have integrity, then this will guide you. It's a good uh, side effect, <laughs> consequence, uh, benefit to walking with integrity. Not only is it the right thing to do, but it then will guide you. If you take the word of God and it dwells richly within you, well, guess what? You're going to benefit from that. It's going to guide you. You'll have leading and direction. So again, it's uh, verse 3, also verse 5, uh, as we talk about the integrity of the upright will guide them. It will also smooth his way. What's, what's better than guidance? Then how about having the way in front of you smoothed out, rocks removed, and uh, steep, uh, steepness kind of leveled out and aspects there. Anyway, 39 Old Testament uses. Uh, the strongest concordance number for Nacha is uh, 5148. It's N-A-C-H, that guttural C-H, the ch sound. 
A-H, Nacha. And uh, we're familiar with a lot of these because uh, Psalm 23, right? He leads me beside still waters. The Lord is my shepherd. And uh, he does lead. He nachaz me. Uh, Genesis 24, verse 27 and 48. We have nacha applications there. When uh, Abraham is sending his servant to go find a wife for his son, and uh, Abraham's servant then has faith that God is going to nacha, God is going to guide him. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has nacha, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. And so he realizes, man, this is providence. This is the hand of God. This is guidance. We can trust this. And uh, even before he arrived in town, he was praying. He said, Lord, show me. He was praying. And um, anyway, so it turns out the uh, woman comes and uh, waters his... uh, Anyway, there's a long story here, but um, I like it. Down to verse uh, 48. See, he has a prayer... And I'm just not, oh, there it is, verses 12 through 14. He has a prayer. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. May it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jars that I may drink and who answers drink, I will water your camels also, may be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, this is a marvelous illustration. And this is not, this is faith in action. This is a personal wisdom that's leading to a public wisdom that's directing how he makes his choices. And um, this, is, this is described as a positive illustration and the Lord honors it. And, and, and the Lord is worshipped because of this chapter. You know, can we do something similar? Do we do things? Well, of course we do. Our prayers get patterned on the basis of this. All the time. All right. And so what he had said, Lord, I'm in your hands and, and you're in charge of my circumstances. I'm not in charge of my circumstances. I can't control which girls come out here to meet me at the well. You're in charge of that. Okay. And if I'm too, uh, if I'm too selfish or slow or stupid or, or dim-witted to figure stuff out, then make it obvious. Let it be the one that, you know, shape my circumstances so there's no question this is the one. See. And so, you know, you get to Austin Bible Church and there's only one unmarried woman in the entire church. <laughs> you know, well, that's pretty obvious because Rhonda got married in January. I showed up in March and, uh, and uh, or April. I showed up in April. Or did I show up in May? It was May. Uh, May 4th. May 9th was my first Wednesday night in, in, at Austin Bible Church. And, um, and, and Sharon was sitting right next to Shirley. <laughs> okay. And since Rhonda had gotten married, that left Sharon as the only uh, the only unmarried woman in the church, and said, "All right, Lord, I can take a hint." <laughs> and so here's the uh, the prayer life. But there's leadership, and you got to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. Verse 48 of the same chapter: I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord and the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me. 
in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So there's guidance. This is our verb, nacha. The best part of following nacha is you can, you can relax. You can rest in faith. You can trust because God's the one that guided you in this. And, and you don't waste all that stupid time just thinking back and wondering and what if and well, you know, you try to rehash uh, past decisions and think, did I, did I do the right thing? Did I, was that smart? Was that dumb? Hey, God guided you in that. So quit it. Just relax. You know, all this navel-gazing and all this second-guessing and all this, all this you know, it's, it doesn't edify and it's actually insulting to the God who guided you in, in that choice. You made it by faith. You followed His guidance. Let it go. Move on to the next decision in divine guidance. But, you know, Satan constantly wants us to question ourselves and to think back. Did God really say? And, and, and start casting doubt on how faithful God is. No, God is very faithful. He's eternally faithful, infinitely faithful. Follow his guidance. And then Exodus 13, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. There's guidance. So when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. You know, why doesn't God take the shortest route? I want to take the shortest route. <laughs> I want to get it done with. Let's do it now. I mean, my whole life is trying to find the next shortcut. Let's, let's, uh, let's find another shortcut. Well, God didn't work that way. And maybe uh, this, this pattern you've developed uh, needs to be remedied. <laughs> Because if you go that way, you're going to get discouraged. There's, there's big Philistines that way. Uh, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And uh, things are quite different between Abra- the Philistines of Abraham's day and the Philistines of Moses' day. Yeah, they didn't have uh, Abimelech in Moses' day. Uh, get down to verse 21. So the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, to nachah them, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them uh, light that they might travel by day and by night. Do not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So there's guidance, there's leadership, and he never takes it away. He never uh, leaves us without guidance, leaves us without direction. We always have leading if we seek it. We always have guidance, either explicitly as a promise in the Word of God or as a principle, as a pattern, or as an expression of our integrity. We can trust that. It will guide us. Okay, and if 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 we're wrong, he'll guide us there too. <laughs> okay, if we take it to him in prayer, say, Lord, I need clear guidance on this. In the integrity of my heart, this is what I I think you would have for me to do. In the integrity of my heart, this is what I I believe I need to do. You know, and 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 just give it to him in prayer. That's what that's what Abraham's servant did. He said, Lord, I'm I'm at this well. Here's what I'm going to do, and you leave it in his hands. So that he can arrange the circumstances. He can overrule. He can shut it down. He can stop you from whatever. But in the integrity of your heart, this is what you're led to do. And it's your integrity that's leading you to that. All right. Well, there it is. The immediate parallel to verse 3 is verse 5, where guidance is parallel to the smooth way. Where guidance is parallel to the smooth way. And so uh, we can take a look at this. Proverbs 11.5, we can relate it back to chapter 3. I'm running out of time. We can look forward again to chapter 15 and verse 21. 
We can see the prophecy of Isaiah 45, and we can see how it applies to the forerunner. John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner to smooth the way. And um, the blessings that we have to smooth the way. The, the best part we have of, of, of walking with integrity and walking in a smooth way is that we get to then be heralds of the Christ. <laughs> we get to be uh, we get to be fulfill the role that John the Baptist fulfilled, and we can we can point the whole world to the to the coming King. Assuming, of course, we're following this divine guidance. All right. Well, we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, and Rapture Penny. We'll be able to move on to the money issues that come back again. And uh, in verse four, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Yeah, there's problems that your money won't get you out of. Uh, money's not the solution to those problems, all right? Righteousness is God's provision. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for holding off the migraine and allowing for a class to be taught. I pray that uh, the class was edifying and instructive and uh, that you would bless uh, the brothers and sisters that humbled themselves under the authority of your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.